Hello, and welcome to Reason Town, a podcast about reason and the community that makes it awesome. I'm super excited to have Laura Gaetano here with us, uh, who is the managing director of the Travis Foundation. She just gave a talk at ReasonConf about developing a community that is inclusive and diverse, and I'm really excited to talk to her about these topics. Welcome, Laura. Hi, uh, thanks, Jared, for having me. To start out, um, I'd love to hear about how you got into coding. Okay, uh, so I I first got into coding when I was 11 or 12. Um, I talked a little bit about this in my talk at ReasonConf. And basically, I just happened to find out about HTML and CSS and sort of building small websites from scratch. And that's basically how I got started. And then I left that aside for a few years and then accidentally sort of got back into coding after attending a Rails Girls workshop here in Vienna. And so I attended the workshop, got really excited about building stuff again, and then started learning Ruby. Fantastic. I, I think getting familiar with various people's stories that probably got in can inform the way that we shape a community. Could you give us a, just kind of a broad overview of what you talked about at ReasonConf? So um, my talk at ReasonConf was um, specifically aimed at a community that is fairly new um, because I know that the best way to make a community diverse is to think about it from the start. And so I think the Reason community is at this really great moment in time where it can be fairly simple to yeah to make the community diverse and so that was sort of my goal with the talk was to give tips and ideas on how we can think about diversity and inclusivity in a fairly new community um, the first part of the talk was a lot about sort of setting a foundation for understanding where the lack of diversity comes from in tech, um, giving a little bit of an idea of what the current landscape looks like in tech in general and in the open source community um, more in detail. And then I talked a lot about privilege and bias, which, to be honest, I was a little worried about how it would be received because I found myself standing in a room mostly full of men and yeah I really wasn't sure how that was gonna go um yeah but I think that's pretty much what I covered in the yeah. talk awesome uh and I, I think it definitely came off quite well uh it was it was tactfully delivered to a room full of privilege so one thing that we were talking about earlier is how the the reason community is quite small, as you said, still growing. And the way that it has grown so far is mostly the people who started it inviting their friends, talking to people they already know. And maybe some people in in various countries coming across it and then inviting their friends. And that kind of sets us up for homogeneity, for if you mostly invite your friends, your friends are probably people that look like you. And so you, you end up with a community that, that is mostly men so far. What are, 
what are tactics we can take to, I mean, it, it would also be great to have a good diversity in our friend groups, but aside from that, how can we make sure that the region community doesn't end up with people that all look the same? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um... I often just recommend, so I use Twitter a lot. I love Twitter. I think it's a great tool to um, hear different voices and to just kind of, yeah, to get to know people you wouldn't otherwise get to know sort of in your local community, right? And so I've been using Twitter a lot to basically try and find people who are not like me and basically trying to build a network of different people. So I think that's perhaps a very good way to start. Um, just basically just following different people on Twitter. And there's um, by now there's people who have created lists of, you know, um, women in tech, women in JavaScript, uh, people of color in open source. And there's, there's various lists um, and very often if you follow like a couple of sort of big players in certain communities it makes it much much simpler to kind of yeah to expand your your network easily so that i think that's if i had to give like one single thing to do uh, that would be the one like expanding the network through tools like twitter awesome um and Maybe, maybe you, can, you can point us to some of those lists and we'll put them in the show notes for people that are interested. Sure. So in addition to building a community that doesn't just look the same, we, we need to make sure that it is a place that everyone can be comfortable, mm-hmm. right? If, if we invite all of these people from different walks of life um, so that we can have a, a community that is diverse, how do we make sure that that they feel comfortable there. Yeah, so I think that's uh, that's another very good question. Um, a lot of the times when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we focus on diversity and forget the inclusion part. It's really important to, yeah, to actually build the community or to set up the community in a way that the people who are invited there or brought in don't feel don't feel unwelcome or uncomfortable it's actually hard to like I feel like it's easier to do the whole diversity bit than it is to do the whole inclusion bit because again like it requires for us to look at our own biases and our privilege and to sort of think okay I feel comfortable in this space why do I feel comfortable in this space are there things that I can think about that could be done differently in order for other people that aren't like me to feel comfortable. Um, And I think, so I think, again, like the first step to inclusion is to listen to what people have to say. So if someone comes into a space and says, okay, I feel uncomfortable here because of this and this, then listening to them and sort of taking their using their feedback and making changes is sort of a really good step. However, of course, this requires for people to speak up, um, yeah. which means that you put a lot of the workload on them and it shouldn't be that way. So um, need to think about it for a minute. Sure. 
One of the things that I love about the reading community and our, our forums and, and chat rooms is I think we're very welcoming to newcomers. Um, people that don't have any functional programming experience or um, very little or people that are even uh, quite new to programming. And Kira talked a little bit in her talk about ways that we could be even more welcoming to, to newcomers and people that don't have SD experience. But I also want to make sure that that translates to people that are newcomers that also aren't white men. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I think in tech generally we do sometimes have issues with thinking about people who are newcomers um, and that often, I think often the issue is just that if you are five, ten years into your programming career, you sort of forgot what it was like to start out. And that's why I also think, and you as a sort of a person who works in education can totally understand that, like, I think sometimes the best teachers are those very new people because they still remember what it was like to start out. And, and so I think, again, gathering f feedback and talking or including the, the newcomers in making those decisions, like how do we make a space safe or comfortable for newcomers is, you know, is great. And um, that's what I loved about Kira's talk, uh, because she just sort of went into how can we make things better? And this is my point of view from someone who started out a little over a year ago. And yeah, but to get back to sort of the, the diversity and inclusion topic, I think there's just sort of fairly basic things that by now are required in communities um, that make them safer and more comfortable for, for people, um, for all kinds of people. And one of them, and this is something that I also talked about in my talk yesterday, was um, the code of conduct. And I think by now we're in a place where most people understand that you need to have or that you should have a code of conduct. Um, but I think not everyone understands yet why you need a code of conduct and what the code of conduct should look like. So um, the assumption that everyone in the community is a nice person is great, but I think it's not enough to, to make the community safe for everyone. And so having a code of conduct that's extremely detailed, um, that explains you know, what is behavior that we don't accept and sort of really go into detail and what are the consequences for for this type of behavior. I think that kind of makes it much easier to deal then with, with issues in the community. Um, and I think, yeah, on, on one of my slides and you, we can put this in the show notes as well um, I had um, a really good resource from um, Ash Dryden um, she basically collected a bunch of information about code of it was I think it's titled code of conduct 101 or something and it's really a really good look at the how the why and um, of, of COCs 
Every, every community has to decide um, you know what they think is appropriate um, as sort of I mean I don't want to use the word punishment but as every community needs to look at how they want to deal with the consequences so the first good step is to have a certain number of people um, dedicated people who are in charge of handling handling code of conduct violations And again, it's always really good if these people are not just the same type of people um, because very often underrepresented people or marginalized people tend to not be believed when it comes to when it comes to situations like code of conduct violations. And so it's good to have, I think, a person that you know you can really trust where you can go and say this was like a microaggression and I know that maybe a white, a straight white man might not understand what this feels like, but I know that you're like me and you've probably witnessed something like that or experienced something like that. And I know that you will believe me or understand like how deep microaggressions can go. Um, so, so I think... So having someone... On, on the enforcement team that can relate much better to... Exactly. To yeah. Um, I think that's really important. And then, I mean, within, of course, within a community, particularly an online community, it's a little harder because you don't have sort of the physical... You can't talk about things face-to-face. Right. And I think as we move more and more into online communities. Um, I have the feeling that text-based communication is sometimes misunderstood um, so much more than... And I perhaps it's because we don't have the, the sort of physical feedback, the body language or anything like that. But it feels like we've sort of fallen back on using emojis to sort of express if we were being sarcastic or not and so I can understand that it can be really really hard to handle code of conduct violations um, within the context of an online community but um, I guess we just have to learn (laughs) how to um, how to make it work okay Um, 
One thing that I thought of while you were talking about inclusion was having a community survey. I know NPM recently ran a large survey about all the JavaScript community and GitHub. You, you referenced the GitHub open source survey in your talk. And having a survey that's anonymous might also be a way that we could, for one, collect information on demographics and interesting things about people's experience learning reason, but also feedback on is there anything we can do to make it more welcoming or are there ideas that people have uh, to make this just a better community? Right. Um, so I think surveys are definitely a really good way to give and get feedback. What's always interesting and I, I mean, I love looking into surveys and trying to use that as data for, for my talks and to, to make points, but it's, um, and I'm not like, I'm not a data scientist or I don't, I don't do that for a living. I'm, I'm not skilled in sort of understanding how to phrase questions uh, so that people will answer better. But I think we, we also always have to be careful with basically who answers the surveys like is it going to be really 100% of the community if not right. like who are the people who are not you know who are not answering are they actually the people that we want to reach and so um also with the open with the github open source survey survey i mean i don't remember ever filling out uh, the github open source survey so this means that i'm not included in in these responses and and in the final results right so it's definitely a good way to get feedback um, it's definitely a good way to have an idea of the demographics but it's also but I'm not sure like how to do it best so that you get as much information from that as possible right yeah if, if you're trying to get uh, a sample and there's a portion of the population that is um, much less representative. If uh, if there's a little statistical variation in your sample, you might lose the entire. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm fortunate. I guess my wife has studied sociology and social work, and so she knows how to create surveys in the right way and do the data analysis. So we can take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, there's a whole sort of science um, behind how to phrase things so that people will be more likely to answer them. And I think there's also been, I think there's also been research into the bias of like how you phrase questions yeah. and how you basically set up answers so that people will actually answer what you want them to answer, right. <laughs> which is also like a sort of science or skill yeah. in itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I also want to talk about Rails Girls Summer of Code. And you said that you getting into programming again was through a, a Rails Girls meetup, is that right? Yeah. And now you're, you're running the program. Uh, can you tell us about how it works and how members of the Reason community can get involved, both if they want to participate or if they want to donate or help organize or whatever it is? Right. Um, so I want to go a little bit into sort of the history or the background of Rails Girls and how it came about. Um, basically, Rails Girls is a sort of 
decentralized initiative where people can host workshops in their own city and sort of set up a group there. And usually the workshops are two-day workshops with like an install party where you install Ruby and everything and then um, a workshop on the following day. And so this is, yeah, this is a decentralized initiative, which means that people set up the groups and um, people attend whatever. I attended the one in Vienna and one of the communities at the time, one of the Rails Girls communities at the time that was very, very strong was the Berlin one. So Rails Girls originated in Finland and was created by um, a woman called Linda Lucas, who now does a lot actually in education and in teaching kids how to code uh, using Ruby and writing books. But yeah, the Berlin community sort of unexpectedly grew a lot. And so the Rails Girls chapter sort of, I think by now it's one of the biggest, or if not the biggest in, in the world, um, because the... The workshops happen super often, like, I mean, super often, twice a year or so. And so the Berlin community said, okay, after the workshops, um, these are beginners workshops. What, how do we, you know, how do people continue coding? And so they set up study groups. And then after the study groups, they sort of wondered, okay, you know, what could, what could go next? If their goal is to find, uh, to start a career as a programmer, will the study group be enough or what should come next? And so from, from that came the idea of starting a summer of code similar to the Google summer of code, where people can basically just sort of dive into code by contributing to open source software for three months. So this is sort of how it got started. And right now, I think it's very confusing for people because Rails Girls and Rails Girls Summer of Code are sort of different or separate initiatives in the sense that the people organizing the Rails Girls events and the people organizing the Rails Girls Summer of Code are sort of separate, um, separated. And um, But to get back to Rails Girls Summer of Code, um, it's a three-month uh, program for women and non-binary people all around the world uh, with no restrictions on age or on background. Um, so Google Summer of Code, for example, is I think only for university students. We don't have that requirement um, because we want a different audience. We want different people, literally people from all walks of life. We've had people who were 18 people who were 50 years old. Uh, we've had women who sort of got back into tech like after 20 years not working in the industry. And so it's all a little a little different from, from regular Summer of Code programs. But they contribute to open source full-time and are paid for it. So that's sort of the general, the general idea. And Again, the name is very confusing for people because it's not just Rails, it's not just Ruby. We have projects from different communities, different languages. So the program is actually language agnostic. Um, and we've had you know, projects like Servo, which is in Rust, or Nextcloud, which I think is PHP. And so lots of different... We've had Babel as well, which is JavaScript. So, so many different, different projects and languages. And so actually one way in which the Reason community could get involved would be by submitting Reason as a project for people to work on. So that could, I could 
really imagine that happening next year, for example. Cool. So if is it that potential participants come and say, here's the project I want? Or do you have, say, the maintainer of a project saying, I would love some help with this if there are any volunteers? How does, how does that matching project uh, yeah. work? So we basically... Um, when, when applicants apply to the program, we provide them with a list of projects to work on. And when I say project, I mean, um, I would consider reason to be a project and not, not, you know, a specific feature that needs to be implemented as being counted as a project, okay. if that makes sense. Um, and so usually project maintainers will come to us and say, or will submit their project and say, I want to participate in Rails Go Summer of Code. These are some of the things that I envision for the future that that participants could work on. And and we basically do it the other way around. You know, so we yeah, we have maintainers come to us. We decide which projects we'd sort of um, consider having on board, then applicants apply to the program, they select one of the projects, um, talk to the maintainers to figure out if they'd be a good fit. And then we basically pull all of that information together and um, and do the selection that way. Awesome. And how does how does mentorship work? Like what, what are the expectations of, so if, for example, Reason were submitted as a project, is it expected that the Reason maintainers would then also provide mentorship for the participants or would they find some other mentor? How does that? Yeah, so, um, we have two different roles in the program um, and we need to think a little bit perhaps about like naming them better, but uh, we have the mentor role, so the project mentor role, and then we have the coach role. Usually maintainers of say the, the reason project would, would focus on helping participants sort of stay on track when it comes to the features that they want to develop. So they wouldn't help necessarily with um, technical, with questions like, with questions like, oh, you know, my code isn't working and I don't know how to debug this. But, and, and this would be the role of the coaches that the team have, have chosen. So they find their own coaches either in the local community or remote coaches and these people will help them at the technical, at the more basic technical level. Um, whereas the project maintainers of, say, the Reason project would guide them a little bit when it comes to developing the features, thinking about the roadmap, you know, reviewing the code and all that. So, um, yeah, the, I guess the responsibility is split between the project maintainers and the coaches that the team have chosen. Okay, so the project maintainer can expect to be reviewing pull requests kind of as right. normal and maybe giving a little bit more detailed feedback, a little bit more help, but not not helping in the day-to-day, like I, my build is broken. Yeah, um, not like that. They would um, perhaps, um, you know, do a call once in a while or sort of a, a meeting to talk about you know w- what comes next and and things like that but yeah um, most of like the day-to-day work is then assigned to coaches in the end cool yeah that that is really cool i'm excited about this program where do you said that 
You said that for these three months, the participant is also paid for their contribution. Mm -hmm. Where does that payment come from? Does the, does the project maintainer organize the funds for that? Um, so we organize all of the funds for, okay. um, for that. And we run every year we do a fundraiser. We basically, the money comes from, um, partly from, from sponsors that we have, you know, either sponsors we have every year, like GitHub is one of our biggest partners, uh, since the very beginning. And some of the donations just come from the community. So Yeah, um, so it's kind of split, but we organize the money and we try and kind of handle as much of the organizational side of things so that people don't have to worry about, you know, finding mentors, finding money and all that. Like, sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that sounds really cool. I, I think Rails Girls Sum of Code could be something that we could participate as as a reason community and maybe... Uh, through that support underrepresented people. I think we covered all of the topics that I was excited to discuss. Are there any last words of advice or other, other projects that are helping with diversity and inclusivity that you want to do a shout out to? Um, well, uh, there are so many. <laughs> uh, there are so many. So um, one thing, perhaps one person project community that I also really, really love and would specifically like to point people to is um, the Code Newbies community. Um, they are a community of also incredibly diverse people from different places uh, who are learning to code together. And the organizer or the person who created that community is Saran um, Yidbarek. And she also is the organizer of the Codeland conference that I attended in New York last week. And that's just an awesome community to sort of look up to, um, to, yeah, to be a part of. So if any of your listeners are sort of newer to programming and, and or need uh, some support from a programming, um, from another community, um, then I would I would suggest that they go and look there and that they definitely just also check out the Codeland conference, which might happen again next year, um, because it was amazing. And yeah, they set the bar really high as far as conferences go. Um, otherwise, I think, so I mentioned um, Ash, um, Ash's work earlier. Um, there's a resource that I find incredibly helpful called um, Model View Culture. It's an online magazine. Unfortunately, it's defunct now, but all of the articles are still online and they can be read. And it's a really, really great resource to help people through um, the topics of yeah, privilege, intersectionality, feminism, um, and sort of a, a critical look at tech. Um, so that's also a really, really great resource that I love. And um, Ash, um, or the people behind Model View Culture, also run a program called Fun Club. And the idea of Fun Club is um, put your money where your mouth is. And so if you have money to spare every month, um, they basically choose a... Um, 
an initiative for you to donate to. So you sign up and what you get is like every month an initiative that you should sign up to. And I think that's great because if you're basically, if you have the means to donate, but don't really know which which initiatives are interesting or which ones need your help uh, financially, then that's basically a really like lazy way to, to handle that. And through that, you actually get to know a lot of like the smaller initiatives that you don't really hear about otherwise. So yeah, definitely. I think those cool. would be... So that, that's Fund Club? Uh, fund Club, I, yes. I heard Fund Club. Okay. <laughs> cool. Those are all really fantastic resources and I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on Reason Town and for uh, speaking at the conference. It was excellent. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I, it was exciting to be at a conference and to meet so many new people. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what the Reason community, um, what it develops into.